The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16. We are looking at verses 1 to 15 and then verse 33 of Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16, verses 1 through 15, verse 33. Let's give our attention now as God speaks to us and instructs us from His Word. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face there is life, and in his favor is like and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. Then verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Amen. Well, this concludes the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we look to you and we ask that you would please bless your Word to us. Please give us help to give attention to your Word, to be with both the speaker and listener by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may benefit greatly from your Word that we may grow in righteousness and holiness, that we may live for you lives that are pleasing to you, but that we may do so not for life, but from life, from the life that we have in Christ. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today the world uh, teaches us that we have great potential. It tells us that we need to see our great ability. The world tells us to believe in ourselves. False teachers uh, do the same. This is the heart of their message, such as find a champion within you. Just a matter of finding it. There is a lot of focus in our day on our ability, on our greatness. And while there is a place for encouraging people to exercise the natural talents and abilities that God has given to each one of us, There is a lot of focus in our day on our 
accomplishment and potential, but there's very little focus on our limitation. And yet the Proverbs today show us that wisdom is not in knowing one's great potential, but in knowing one's limitation. And so two beings who remind man that he's got to know his limitations. One's the divine king, pointing to God, and then the second's the the human king. So first, the divine king. Verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So because we're finite and we do not know the secret counsel of God, it is okay for man to plan. It's okay for us to make plans. However, whether or not those plans come to fruition is the Lord's determination. This is stated in our verse as the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. A figurative way of saying that the final answer, what happens, what comes about, the outcome, comes only from the Lord. This is stated another way in verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Again, we can make plans, but how it comes about is determined by the Lord. What happens? This is also picked up in verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now back then, the people of God cast lots to to make important decisions. It's kind of like rolling dice. Who to appoint, whether or not to go to war. We don't do this today because, I believe, of the power of the Holy Spirit that we have. The last time we see this practice, this rolling of dice, is in Acts 1, where they were appointing an apostle to replace Judas. But then after that, the Spirit is outpoured on the church on the day of Pentecost, and this is not practiced anymore after that. So I think this rolling of dice is in lieu of the fullness of wisdom that would come with the Holy Spirit. And so we see in places like 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tell the church, look, you have the wisdom to make important decisions and to make judgments. But the point of verse 33 here is that while man is casting the lot, where it falls comes from the Lord. God is sovereign over every detail, even in where dice land or where stone lands. Every small detail is under the sovereignty of God. Not even a bird of the air or a hair on our head falls apart from the will of God. So our confession says in chapter 3, paragraph 1, from all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside Himself. He did this by His perfectly wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably. God was not bound by anything outside of Himself. He's the Creator and not creature. We need to recognize this. We need to recognize that while we make plans, God is orchestrating everything. You know, when Les Hunt's family was in town, for those of you who don't know, Les Hunt is a member of our church. He died last month, uh, or a couple months ago now, uh, when Les Hunt's family was in town. I got to sit down and talk with them, and they were talking about how they were getting the house ready. And one of the things they said was, it's clear that Les was expecting to come back to his house the day he died. He did not know that the day he left that house, his house that morning, 
that that was going to be the last time he ever left. He was not returning that day. We just don't know what a day may bring. Uh, There's no promise that tomorrow, even though we're young, that we are going to live another day. There was a seminary student at the Master Seminary, John MacArthur Seminary, and he jokingly said he thought seminary was going to kill him. And yet he, he finished it. He, he accomplished the degree. And so the day of graduation, he walks up. He grabs the degree, takes the picture, switches his tassel over, walks up the stage, ready to serve the Lord, and drops dead. Never know what a day is going to bring. We may plan, but it's the Lord who determines our steps. And in this same vein, we go on to read in verse 2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. So one of the reasons why we would get frustrated over our plans not coming to fruition is because it's the master plan. I mean, what I plan, it's the best plan. And why would it not happen? It's so brilliant. It's so good. And why we may think that, because our ways are pure. My plan is certainly the best. It's, it's, it certainly has to happen. It's the Lord who weighs the Spirit. That is, the Lord tests our inner thoughts and our inner desires. And He addresses our idols. And usually He does so through the trials that He orchestrates in our life, including us not getting our way. This reveals where our idols were. The things we trusted in as our rock, as our ultimate satisfaction. And how we know whether or not they are idols is how we respond when we don't get them. How do we respond when our plan doesn't come to fruition? Do we acknowledge that God is sovereign and we are not? And God is not giving us His second best? His best plan? And He has fulfilled the wisest plan for us, even though we may not understand that in the moment? Now this is not to downplay real suffering or the real responsibility of secondary causes. Human beings who will be called into account. But nevertheless, God is the one who is orchestrating all things. And so we acknowledge God in our plans. Verse 3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Now this doesn't mean that if we commit any plan to the Lord, Lord, I am giving this to you, I am trusting you, that God is most certainly going to fulfill our plan, the master plan, as if to say, I want to get rich by selling this product. I want to sell a million products. That's my plan. Lord, I give this into your hand. And if I do, it will certainly come to pass. That's not what this is saying. Rather, uh, entrusting ourselves, committing ourselves to the Lord is planning, is being responsible uh, with the means that the Lord has given to us. But knowing that the Lord is going to carry out His plan. It is trusting Him not to do our will, but His will as we work, as we plan. It is acknowledging God in all things, that He's going to provide even 
as we give ourselves to his means. I like how John Gill put it in his commentary, how he explains his verse. It says it's to devolve all upon him, cast all care upon him and his providence for supply, support and sustenance in life and commit the business of the salvation of our soul and the important affairs of it wholly to him who is able, willing and faithful to keep what is committed to him. And having done so, we may sit down easy and satisfied as one that is rid of a burden by casting it on to another and is better able to bear it, the work committed to him. So we know that God's going to take care of us, that it's not ultimately on us, even as we plan and even as we work diligently. But the outcome is the Lord's, and whatever the outcome is, we trust in his good providence for us. Now, the Proverbs addresses another reason that we may doubt God and not trust him. And it has to do with wicked men. What about the wicked in this world who do evil? Where is God in that, we may wonder? How does that factor in to God's plan? Verse 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day trouble. So lest we think that we cannot trust God because of wicked men in this world, and that really is a stumbling block for a lot of people. Wait a minute. Where's God when this wicked person went out and did this wicked thing? It's caused me harm. It's caused my family harm. We may wonder why God would let that happen if He's both sovereign and good. Well, the proverb here says the Lord has made everything for a purpose. Everything has a purpose. Now, when we hear this, we may think, yeah, well, the good things that happened to me, that has a purpose. God was in that, but the wicked things, God, where is God in that? Well, this proverb says that even the wicked have a purpose in God's plan. They are made for the day of trouble, literally the day of evil or affliction, which refers to their destruction at judgment day. Now notice that this does not say that the Lord has made the day of trouble or judgment for the wicked. Rather, it says it says it the other way around, that the Lord has made the wicked for the day of judgment. So the way this is put is not that God made a day of judgment in light of the wicked, but rather the wicked in light of the day of judgment is the way that this is put here. Now, we have to carefully understand this by allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. Otherwise, we will fall into heresy. The primary thing to keep in mind is that God did not make people wicked. This does not say that God has made people wicked in order to judge them, but rather He has made the people who are described as wicked, who have become wicked, Genesis 1 says that when God made everything, including man, behold, it was very good. And Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, God made man upright, but they have sought after many schemes. So God made man good and upright, and man as a free moral agent, as a secondary cause, has become evil. How did that happen? And here is 
the answer that the Reformed have always given about how evil entered into the world. Ready for this? We don't know. I know, so dissatisfying. It's so dissatisfying, especially for us modern people. We have to know everything. We can we, we have to figure out everything. We can have anything figured out. What do you mean I don't have an answer here? Well, Scripture says that God is sovereign and ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Ephesians 1, He works out all things according to the counsel of His will. Nothing takes Him by surprise. Yet, James 1 says, God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own evil desire. So God, being all good, no evil can come from Him, yet He is sovereign. So it's a mystery as to how evil entered into this world. God made no man wicked, but rather He has made all men who have become wicked unless God saves man from His wickedness. So God has a purpose for them. They did not take Him by surprise. And the purpose He has for them is to glorify Himself in the day of judgment. This is similar to Pharaoh where God says to him, For this very purpose have I raised you up, that I may display My power in you and may be glorified. So God created Pharaoh, but He did not create him wicked. Pharaoh was born wicked in his fall into Adam. Yet God raised up Pharaoh in his providence, giving him great power and authority as a king. And then turning Pharaoh over to the wickedness that was already present in his heart. God did not inject wickedness into his heart. Rather, God turned Pharaoh over to his wickedness rather than deliver him out of it. God let Pharaoh run loose and express the natural sinful inclinations of his heart. And God did this so that he would put his great power on display in judging Pharaoh and his kingdom, and destroying him. While God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, that they would repent and that they would turn from their ways, yet God is glorified in the destruction of wicked men. What this is telling us is that even wicked men are not outside of God's purpose. That God has a purpose for them. They will be judged. They will glorify God in, his, in their destruction. So we can rest assured that God has a purpose even for the wicked. But we may not know each specific purpose for each specific wicked person. We do know generally that it is to fill up the measure of their sin for the coming day of judgment. And in line with this, verse 5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. So an arrogant or proud heart is one that thinks very highly of itself. It is someone who boasts in himself, primarily talks about himself, his accomplishments, is self-centered. Anytime there's a conversation, it turns back to Him. It's a heart that is lifted up and glories in Himself. It's more concerned about His own interests than the interests of others. 
And even though it may not always be manifested, but is cloaked in false piety, even that is because I care about what others think of me, and I want to look good, so I'm going to even cloak my evil. Yet God sees his heart. And the Scripture says that it is hated by God and will most certainly be punished by God 100% guaranteed, no doubt about it. Now, this leaves us with either deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are humble enough to avoid this judgment or in our own pride of our heart to try to work hard at being humble. Works of the law. Okay, okay, I read that verse. Uh, be, be humble, be humble. Oh, come on, be humble. So as to avoid God's punishment. But there's another option. And the other option is expressed in the next verse, in verse 6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. So this is how sin, including the secret pride of our heart, which the Lord clearly sees, is atoned for. That is, is satisfactorily made up for before God. It's by steadfast love and faithfulness. But is it our steadfast love and faithfulness? Well, do we have enough steadfast love and faithfulness to make up for our sin, to atone for our sin? By no means. Rather, it is the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness that our sin is atoned for, that it's paid for, that it's dealt with sufficiently before God. It is His steadfast love and covenantal faithfulness as expressed in Exodus 34 that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's His abounding steadfast love and faithfulness by which our sin is dealt with. And this is seen in Christ coming and God the Son becoming a man and bearing our sin upon Himself. And why would He do that? Who is a God like this that He would do that? It's because of His steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who our God is. And this is what He has done to atone for our sin, to take our place on the cross, dealing with all our sin, canceling it out. Dealing with all that arrogant pride in our heart that we can't hide from God. God has dealt with by sending His Son to be crushed for that. But how do we turn away from sin? How do we turn away from the pride in our heart? Well, verse 6 says that it is by the fear of the Lord that we turn away from evil. Now, this is very important. If you've tuned out, which I know it's easy to do in the afternoon service in a very warm sanctuary with a very boring preacher. Why do you laugh at that? Okay. This is very important to get, okay? How do you turn away from sin? How do you deal with sin? You're struggling with sin. How do you turn away from it? Well, notice what God's Word says here. Notice what it does not say, first of all. It does not say by putting rules and boundaries in place in our life that we turn away from sin. Now, it may be wise 
to not have access to the internet for a time on your phone. It may be wise to not have alcohol in the house for a time. It may be wise to not have the credit card for a time. But these rules actually do not turn you away from sin. They are only put in place until you grow in self-control, until your heart grows. How does somebody turn away from sin? Well, it's by the fear of the Lord, as our verse says. It's only by the fear of the Lord that our hearts actually turn away from sin. Now remember what the fear of the Lord is. It's not being afraid of His wrath and judgment so that you make sure you try to behave enough so as to avoid it. His, his judgment is hanging over your head as a covenant of works and you better get your act together if you don't want that judgment to fall upon you. That is a slavish fear that an unbeliever and not a child of God has. Rather, the fear of the Lord is indeed to take Him seriously as as the God of the universe, as the Creator. But it's to stand in awe of Him, to be so consumed by His glory and His great goodness that it fills and controls your heart. And part of that, a main part of that, is placing your confidence in His love. As Psalm 147.11 says, the fear of the Lord is to place your confidence in His steadfast love, to place your hope in His love. And Psalm 130 verse 4 says the fear of the Lord comes from knowing His forgiveness. The fear of the Lord is to stand in awe of God for His rich mercy and love and grace and forgiveness towards you. This is how you turn away from evil. It's by knowing this. If you can't turn away from evil until you have feared the Lord, there is no turning away from evil. You can have every rule in place. And yet you will not turn away until you have been filled with His goodness. Just having rules of do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, do not change the heart that idolizes these things. Rather, these idols are dealt with with a new love. And that new love is loving the Lord, which only comes through knowing His Gospel. Knowing His love for you, as you fill your heart with that, then you turn away from these false gods and idols. And this has effects such as being at peace with your enemies, verse 7, and being satisfied with little while walking in righteousness rather than pursuing the things of the world through unrighteous means, verse 8. Now a second being who reminds us that Man's got to know his limitations, and this will be much briefer. That is the human king. The Proverbs now begin to address the wisdom of living before a king. Back in that day, you could be killed uh, if you misbehaved before the king, or if you made him mad, or even if you weren't happy before him. And obviously, it's wise then to consider how you live before a king so that things may go well. Now, thankfully, we don't have a king today. Uh, there's a good, good reason uh, for that. But we do see some principles here, especially as it applies to our redemption in Christ. So verse 10, an oracle is on the lips of the king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. So when a king speaks and gives a command, he speaks as uh, one who has been appointed by God in his sovereignty, his authority over the people. Therefore, whatever he says goes. 
There's no charging him with sin. In verse 11, a just balance and scales and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. Now in the context of the king, he should want just balances. And back then they would measure things out through these scales and people would alter the scale so they got more. But the Lord wants a just, just balance because it's based on his righteous character. It's his doing. Verse 12, it is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. So the king hates evil in his kingdom because his throne, his secure reign, is established by righteousness. That is how a throne is established. Not by power, not by military might, not by money, but by righteousness. And therefore, verse 13 says, Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. And so it is wisdom to do and say the things that are righteous in the king's kingdom. As verses 14 and 15 go on to say, A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. It is, or in the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. It's either life or death before the king. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, sending an appointed servant to kill you. That's what messengers were sent to execute people at times. And only those with wisdom will avoid and appease the king. But his favor, the light of the king's face, which is a metaphor for his favor, him being happy and pleased with you, is life. It is like the clouds that bring the spring rain, the rains that were desperately needed as the seed were being sown so that the freshly planted seeds would have an abundant water. And so wisdom is to know how to live in the presence of the king. But these verses seem to point to an ideal king, to a perfect king who judges justly and never sins in his judgment who hates evil, whose throne is established by righteousness, and who delights in righteousness. What king could this be? Of course, this is the great King of kings and Lord of lords, our Lord Jesus Christ. As the Scripture says of Christ, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is the perfect and righteous king who perfectly hates sin and loves all righteousness. He is the perfectly righteous one who never sinned in his judgment. Therefore, it is before this king that there is either life or death. His wrath means eternal death, sending his messengers, his angels to execute his judgment on the wicked forever on judgment day. But the light of his face, his favor, means life. It means life eternal and happiness. His favor is life. And beloved, we who believe have his favor. We have the king's favor. We have his face shining upon us, not because of our works, but because, not because of our works, but because of his works, because of his merit, 
because of His love. And every time we hear the benediction at the close of the Lord's Day, where it says, may the Lord's face shine upon you. May He lift up His countenance upon you. That is God confirming to us His people whose sins have been forgiven, that we have the King's favor, that His face shines upon us, regardless of how well we have performed throughout the week, regardless of of whether or not our heart is acting in arrogance or walking in humility, that we have His favor. So that is why the Lord blesses us and keeps us. That is why His face shines upon us. Because the King of Kings has given up His life for us. And we forever have His favor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that Christ's face shines upon us. Your people who have been forgiven. And so by the wisdom that we have in Christ, may we walk in it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.